If you brought a Bible with you today, you can find Luke chapter 1, otherwise the words will come up on the screen for you. Luke chapter 1, as we continue in our series, Once Upon a Time Came Jesus. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and blessed, I'm sorry, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb, that being John the Baptist, leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Will you pray with me? Our father... Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the songs that we have sung, songs of the season. And for these praises that we have lifted up to you, we can only hope that they've been acceptable in your sight. And as we learn a little bit more from Mary's own Magnificat, her praise, may we understand praise better today. And from our very hearts, be enabled by you to praise you even better. And for some of us today, for the very first time, we ask in Jesus, the Christ's name, amen. Well, once upon a time came Jesus. Now, in many fairy tales, there is a moment when the central character at this very, very low point is confronted by the miraculous. In Cinderella, it's her fairy godmother, remember? In Sleeping Beauty, I think there's like three of them, depending on the version you're watching. And then there's Peter Pan, I think it's, is it Tinkerbell? Waving the wand, sprinkling the pixie dust in order to spread magical feelings over the character. It's all fun, it's all make-believe, and our kids love it. But the Christmas story is not fun make-believe. It's awesome, it's otherworldly, it's miraculous, it's historically true, and it's intended for us to believe and receive. And as we've seen already, if you've been with us, the, the lowly servant in our story is not Cinderella, but Mary, visited by the most glorious 
of all angels, Gabriel, who, by his own testimony to Zechariah, stands in the presence of God. And his announcement to Mary would set the stage for the next three decades the world had yet to see and will never see again. The Son of God in flesh, God himself manifested in flesh, living, breathing, eating, sleeping, fellowshipping with, being able to be touched and displaying his glory on the earth in human form, unglorified, mind you, even though there was glory, right? All before becoming a sacrifice for sin and the Savior to those who had trusted him. In fairy tales, the recipient of the good news often breaks out in song. You ever notice that? Impossible. I'm not going to sing it. I couldn't. That was Cinderella's song, right? Her, actually, her fairy godmother, then she followed her. But then again, in the make-believe world, nothing is impossible, right? Right? But this is not a make-believe world that we're living in. And Gabriel has already said to Mary, when she inquired how this could happen, nothing is impossible with God. Amen? Nothing is impossible with him. And some of us just need to be reminded of that today. You're in one of those lowly places in your life, and it seems like you've been given an eternal sentence, and you need the impossible. And you need to be reminded that that is a true statement, not just for Mary. It's a true statement for you. Nothing is impossible with God. And it's not because we can conjure up imaginations or hope so much, I hope so much, I hope so much. Because it's simply true. It's Nothing is impossible with God. Not with your imaginations and hopes, but it's with God that nothing is impossible because he's omnipotent, right? And with that, Mary breaks out in song. A, a song of perfect praise. So, there is, as we said a little bit earlier, something about praise that God loves. It's, it's, it's good, it's pleasant, and it's beautiful, according to Psalm 147, verse 1. And Mary's praise is good, pleasant, and exceedingly beautiful at the revelation that she would become the mother of God's own son. Her praise is almost a mirror of her own hero in life, who was, ironically, a type of Mary. I'm talking about Hannah, about a thousand plus years earlier. 1 Samuel 1. Here is a woman who'd been scorned, and she had no children. And you, you will remember, she was given a child. She went into the temple. She poured out her heart to God. The priest, the high priest gave a prophecy, and she would give birth to Samuel. This was Mary's hero. And her prayer here is almost a mirror of Hannah's. Sometime on your own, read those two prayers, and they just line up with one another. Not exactly, but very close. 
Mary, without question, was an incredibly godly young woman, worthy not to be prayed to, but to praise the Lord for. As an example, for sure, certainly her demonstration of faith that we looked at last week in contrast to Zechariah, but here, in this case, in the realm of praise, where a lot of us need some help, including myself. What are the requirements of praise that please God? Because we've just said, God loves real praise. So what are the requirements? Let's look at four of them, just from her praise here, okay? Here's the first one. Praise requires the internal devotion of soul and spirit to God, okay? Praise, real praise that pleases God requires internal devotion of both soul and spirit. And do you notice that? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And so if you were to look at Hannah's praise, she just capsulizes it in one word, her heart. She mentions her heart. And we are talking about this immaterial part of our beings, the inner person, the inner individual, the one that the Apostle Paul, when he praised and he prayed for the Ephesians, he said, I'm praying for you. I'm on my knees and I'm praying for you that you would be strengthened with all strength in the inner man, in the inner person. That's where true praise emanates. Remember when Jesus talked to the woman at the well, he said, God is what? Spirit, right? And those who worship God must worship him internally, in spirit, and in accordance with truth. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. And this is extremely important because there's a lot of sincere people out there that don't worship according to the truth. So it takes that combination of the internal devotion matched up with the truth of God. The Lord is near to those who call upon him. Psalm 145, verse 18, I just thought of this. To those who call upon him in truth. So there's that combination, so to speak. So, and remember, we got that stir. Remember, we quote it all the time. Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your, that internal being, your heart, God raised him from the dead. That, that's when you're going to be saved. The other day, my wife and I bugged out, got out of town for a couple of days. We went down to Kansas City, hung out with some friends and did some shopping. And, and we ended up going to a very unique museum. Some of you may have been there, the, the Arabia Steamboat Museum. I wonder how many of you have ever been there. Kind of a unique little museum down there. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a museum about a steam sh- uh, ship back in the middle 1800s that went down in the mighty mo, the the Muddy Mo, as they call it, the, the Missouri, and uh, really not very far from that area. And uh, it gone down. There were 132 people on board. Nobody died, but the ship went down. All the booze got away. All the money got away, but everything else. So no, they didn't pay too much attention to it. They tried to dig it up a couple of times and, and uh, unsuccessfully. But it's quite an interesting story because everybody was saved. The only being... That died was a mule. And the mule's in a display case. It really is. The skeleton, at least. They found it. As the story goes, the owner of, the, of this uh, mule had tied it to the sawmill on the deck. But as the ship was going down, he heroically tried to save his, you know, old Bessie or whatever its name was. And, uh, 
And he said, I untied it, and I, you know, just tried to get her and kick her and just get her to go, and, and, and she, she wouldn't go. And uh, so she drowned. Well, 132 years later, in 1988, they, they dug this thing up, and there it is. If you look really closely at that picture, you'll see uh, she was still tied to that sawmill. The owner was just talking trash. He was talking like he's like hero, you know, like he'd gone and tried to save his mule, you know. He was just saving himself. After all these years, his sin had found him out. And as, uh, as the curator was telling the story, I was thinking of the words of Jesus where he said, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Have you ever read that? Nothing about you and I is so hidden, so buried, so unseen as our hearts. But God sees them, right? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the what? The heart. And even here, Mary says in verse 51, she says that God has has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud, watch this, in the thoughts of their hearts. So that's where God is dealing with us. Jesus said, these people draw near me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain and in emptiness, they worship me, teaching doctrines and commandments of men. And you can express all kinds of lip service to God, but if your heart isn't in it, it's not pleasing to God. Internal devotion. So how do we know if our heart is in it? If you think about it, it's kind of a silly question because I think every one of us know. You know when your heart is in something, do you not? And you know when your heart is not in something. And nothing is more frustrating to me than a duty I have to do where my heart isn't in it. When you sang, was your heart in the singing, in the content of the message? Or were you wandering about Thinking of other things. Were you wishing they would have sung other songs? Christmas, yeah, Christmas music. Come on, let's get the others. What were you thinking? Were you looking at somebody down the row who was being maybe a little expressive and you thought, come on, you're a distraction? You know, one of Mary's own heroes, as I said, was Hannah, who prayed so fervently in that temple for a child, the priest thought she was drunk and called her out for it. He called her out for it. Her response, Hannah's response, is really has in it hidden the secret of internal devotion. She said to the priest in response, here's what she said. She said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. There's the secret to internal devotion. Because in essence, what Hannah was saying was, I'm not drinking in, I'm pouring out. So, I mean, I, I often refer to an older gentleman in the church I used to pastor, just absolutely one of a kind. A man so filled with God and so filled with his word that when he would pray, he literally would tremble. Even in his 80s, he would tremble and weep and just, just one passage of Scripture after another would be coming out of his mouth. 
in honor of God as he literally would pour himself out. And along with the scripture would come his desires for people to be saved, lives to be made right with God, individuals to draw near to God. It was an amazing thing. If you want your praise to be that which blesses the Lord, pleases him, it requires internal devotion of both soul and spirit. Secondly, praise requires the magnification of God. Here's, this is what Jesus, or not Jesus, but Mary says right out of the, right at the beginning, my soul magnifies the Lord. The word magnify is one of the greatest helps in understanding what it means to praise God. I can't, listen, I can't make God bigger than he already is. You can't change God, right? I am the Lord, I do not change, Malachi 3, right? There's no changing God. The only time God became more, and we've said this before, than he already was, is when he became man. In his essence, he never changes. So here's the point. I can't change God, but I can magnify him. When Mary says, my soul magnified, just think exactly what comes to your mind when you think of something that's magnified. You didn't make the object bigger. It just became bigger to you, right? In fact, in my, I just remember that scene in uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Remember when uh, uh, Lucy sees Aslan after she hasn't seen him for a while. Do you remember that? And she says to him, she's looking at him, and he, she says, you seem bigger. Do you remember that scene? And he says, I am not. I just seem that way to you. That's the idea of Mary right here, magnifying God. This is what happens when we magnify God. We, in, in the word means to enlarge. She's enlarging God in her heart. And so... This is what we call Mary's Magnificat. The word Magnificat means to to enlarge. That's what she's doing here. Serious praise simply enlarges our view of God. And this is important because it's not just, okay, I got that. How do I do that? Listen, information is the fuel of magnification. Information is the fuel of magnification. The more I know about God, the more I can express my love and devotion and awe of God. Remember in John chapter 9, here's this guy who's blind. Jesus heals him, and he's standing before you know, the bad guys, and the bad guys are going, you know, tell us about this, this guy who did this to you. We know he's a sinner. And the, the, the blind guy now who can see says, well, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. But I know this, I was blind, now I see. We love that verse, right? That's not good theology. And, but we give him a pass. He's just come into this, the presence of God, and we give him a pass. He doesn't even know if Jesus is a sinner or not. And then there's that group of people that Paul ran into in Acts chapter 18, and they're followers 
of God. They, they, they believe the message of John. Theologians to this moment, they wonder, are they saved or are they not? I'm not really sure if they got saved or if they got saved when Paul visited them. To be honest, I don't even know. But Paul says to me, he says, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they kind of look at each other. Like, what's that? We've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And the next thing you know, the Spirit of God's coming down. They're speaking in tongues and powerful things are happening. And here's the point. In both cases, they, there was sincerity. But ignorance kept them from magnifying the Lord in all of his greatness. It'll, it'll keep, some of you are just, you know, you're just content with John 3, 16. Please! God wants us to magnify him. And information is what leads to magnification. And Mary has got it. She was steeped in information. Her praise reveals her great and deep understanding of God. His power, verse 49. He who is mighty, who's done great things for me. His holiness, same verse. Holy is his name. His mercy, verse 50. In his mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation. His sovereignty, in verses 51, where he talks about how he scattered the thoughts of the proud. He's brought down mighty, lifted up the humble. His goodness and mercy in verses 53 and 54. And his faithfulness at the very end. She's got, she's filled with theological truth about God. Question. When you talk about God, when you praise him, when you pray to him, are you one of those individuals who always say the same thing? I want to ask for a show of hands, but... We won't do that. With the permission from a friend, uh, I, I once, years ago, there was a friend of mine. He was not shallow, but he always prayed the same way. Always pray, He always started every one of his prayers the same way. And I could tell you every one of the characteristics of God, there were about two or three of them that he mentioned every time he prayed. And so, and I was getting a little tired of it. So we were in a group one day, and I said, uh, he said, I'll pray. I said, hey, before you pray, I can tell you exactly what you're going to pray. And I told him. And he said, he, he hung his head, and he lifted, and he, he was so stunned by the comment that I had made. Because I knew this man to be a man of God. And he, he, he stopped. He thought for a little while. And in the next several moments... He prayed one of the most powerful praises I have ever heard anyone ever pray. The attributes of God, are his characteristics, are simply who he is. The other day, somebody expressed to me deep appreciation for the way I shepherded a certain situation. And it greatly blessed me, especially because I've not always been a good shepherd. But... God has always been a good shepherd. And while he doesn't need our praise, he is so, listen, he is, listen to this, he is so pleased with pure praise, scripture says he is enthroned within it. You can read that for yourself in Psalm 22, verse 3. God literally finds himself enthroned in the praises of his people. So with the psalmist, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Here's a third. Here's a third requirement of praise that will please God. 
Praise requires humiliation before God. Piper puts it like this. Only people whose soul can magnify the Lord are people, are people like Mary, who acknowledge their lowly estate and are overwhelmed by the condescension of the magnificent God. Eight times in these few verses, eight, you can count them for yourself, eight times Mary says, he has, he has, he has, he has, he has. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down. He has filled the hungry. He has helped the servant of Israel. And on and on. It's never I have. You never have Mary expressing her personal knowledge or holiness. You don't have Mary saying, you know, saying, you know, you have rewarded me in accordance with my godliness. You have blessed me because of my deep love for you. You've heaped honor on me because of all of my deservedness as a sinless one. You never hear her saying that because it wasn't true. But you do, you do hear her saying this. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God. Say those last two words. My what? You know, the last I checked, only sinners need saviors. Right? And so, ultimately, Mary's humility is shown in her recognition of her need for a Savior. And contrary to Roman Catholic teaching, Mary humbly took her place among all of us with her declaration of her need for a Savior. And will not... I'm sure not fully aware of it. The one she was worshiping was already growing in her womb. By the way, note when Luke records Mary's praise. Uh, it's, it's after she had, verse 39, made haste. She just got the revelation from Gabriel, makes haste to go down to her cousin. She runs to Elizabeth's house. Undoubtedly, in her, her head is spinning over this revelation just given to her. She hasn't even had a chance to drink it all in. She walks into the house. Elizabeth greets her. John the Baptist does a flip. Elizabeth says, oh, my goodness, the mother of my Lord has shown up. Can you, she is, can you just imagine taking this information in? And it's only after that amazing greeting of Elizabeth that she busts out in this incredible and very, very humble praise. And, can, and her last word, by the way, to Gabriel, if you remember, was, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Literally, I am the slave of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's not just faith. That's humility. That's surrender. And Tozer put it this way, God does not save him whom he cannot command. Have you ever heard that line before? Can he command you? And some of you are just in this stubborn state of being for whatever reason. You won't trust Jesus because of your pride, because somebody has wronged you. You know everything you've heard about the gospel is true. And maybe there's just somebody in your life you're not willing to forgive. And that stubbornness is 
hampering your walk with God. Seven years ago, my brother, Steve, placed his faith in Jesus to be his Savior. The interesting thing about it is we all thought he trusted Jesus about 30 years ago. But he'd lived this dubious life, lived a very, very sinful life, virtually a lie for, a, for over a decade for sure. And once his sin was revealed, what he had done, and it was bad, really bad, he was radically humbled like I'd never seen him humbled previously when he claimed to know Jesus. And many men here will remember it. He came here and told his story to a group of men seven years ago. He was very humble, abjectly humble. And he had come to trust Christ as Savior. But he could not find that same forgiveness in his awfully betrayed wife. And who could blame her? And so they split. And he struggled along. She struggled too. But eventually, after several years, she came to recognize her need to forgive. And that this thing, if God was in it, could be brought back together. And began to pray to that end. But by then, my brother had kind of checked out of the possibility of it ever. He'd made a few tries and was rebuffed, and he just didn't think it would be worth it trying again. Somewhere in all of that, I got involved. And without getting into those details, because that would be a diversion, my brother recognized that righteously, he needed to make every attempt to be right with his wife. And he took a trip several states away, met up with his wife, and he humbled himself. And she found herself humbling herself every bit as much for harboring a bitter, unforgiving spirit. And instantly, God reconciled them. And this coming June, I'm going to have the privilege of performing a remarriage. But it all happened because God himself had worked a spirit of humility in their lives, both of them. There wasn't the finger pointing. It died after all of that. It took great humiliation on both parts, but God commanded and they obeyed. If we want our praise to God to be acceptable before him, it needs to be the kind that's very, very humble. Humiliation before God. And if necessary, before others. One more thing and we're done. Praise requires faith in the promises of God. At the very end of Mary's Magnificat, she says, he, verse 54, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham 
and to his offspring forever. To a godly Israelite like Mary, salvation's history began with Abraham. As God promised Abraham the miracle of a son that would begin a nation, so he promised Mary a son who would change the world and become the sin bearer and savior for those who would trust. And she believed it. Praise requires faith because without faith, it is impossible to what? Can't please God without faith. The object of our faith is God himself. The content of our faith are the promises that he has made to us in his son. Promises, mind you, that he alone can make good on. Just a couple things as we conclude. First, God helps those who cannot help themselves. God is holy, but he blesses the humble. And God's holiness will always oppose your pride. I hate pride in others. Amen? So do you. God even more. But it's only when I hate pride in me that I can experience the floodgates of mercy that Mary is talking about here. And you too. So recognize today that you are helpless to help yourself. Admit your pride. And humble yourself. And for some of you, for the very first time, believe in Jesus and thus enter into his praise. May we pray together? Our dear God and Father, we thank you for this time we could be together, we could worship you, and we could sing our songs to you. And Father, we thank you for this testimony of Mary and this powerful praise from the inner person of her being. And I pray for those, Lord, who here who have been saying words for years, but it's never come from their hearts, and they really know it. I pray that their, their soul would magnify you today and their spirit would rejoice in you today. You're our Savior. Help us, Lord, who know you, who are true followers of Jesus, to understand the meaning of magnification when it comes to praise and humiliation when it comes to coming before you. And we do so because you are a God who says what he's able to perform. And so by faith, we receive that. And I pray if there's someone here, and there surely is, that would say, and, and this would be you, you're, you who have never trusted Jesus, you're saying, I am a sinner. My worship has not been real. I'm like your brother who gave lip service, but it's never been genuine in my life. But God's touched my life. If, that, if that's you, just acknowledge that to God. God, you've touched my life today. I am a sinner. I do humble myself. I am sorry. Would you please forgive me? Would you please apply your mercy and your grace and your salvation through Jesus to me? Would you pray that from your heart? From your innermost being? 
and be saved. Lord, this whole Christmas story is not a fairy tale. It's the truth. And we thank you for this breakout song of Mary's, one that we can apply to ourselves in our attempts to learn how to give you praise that you yourself will find yourself pleased to be enthroned within. As we pray these things in Jesus' name, 